You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. All right, well, we're going to begin in uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 this morning. If you need a Bible this morning, just go ahead and raise your hands. One of our ushers will be happy to bring you a Bible, place it in your lap, and it'll be much more enjoyable if you can open the scriptures with us. We are in a series, week two of four, of a series called The DNA of a Relationship with Jesus. The DNA of a Relationship with Jesus, and we'll be going through the book of 1 John, or the letter of 1 John to the church. And last week, we really talked heavily about this transmission of joy. John says in verse 4 of chapter 1, I have told you these things that your joy may be full. And the things that John told was this, that they have seen, that they have heard, that they have touched, the living God in Jesus Christ. As eyewitnesses, they got to experience what it was to hear the voice of God, to see him with their own eyes. Every time they sat around a campfire and they heard his voice, or they saw him, or they ate meals with him, John is declaring that Jesus Christ is the living God who has come to have relationship with you and with me. And it brought John great joy to share this with others, who this is offered to. And we know, according to John, in John 3.16, Jesus says, For God so loved what? The world. This offer is extended to all men, to all women, of all races, of all nationalities. And this morning, as we continue in this series of the DNA of a relationship with Jesus, I've titled the message, The Assurance of of knowing Jesus. The assurance of knowing Jesus. How many of you appreciate assurance? How many of you keep your receipts? You appreciate assurance. Uh, I can remember when our firstborn, Uriah, was about, to be, was about to be born, we got this crib, and it came in like 400 pieces. And you open up the box, and there's the directions. You're like, sweet mercy, it's in Chinese, it's in French, it's in Italian. Okay, good, there's English. And then they try to give you pictures. But all the parts look the same in the pictures. And I'm putting this together, and you put it together, and of course, what's left over? Like eight screws. And you're sitting there going, do I have assurance that my child is not going to collapse in this crib? And I think sometimes our faith is very similar. We often think that it's up to us to be assured of our salvation in Jesus Christ. We think that it's our doing, it's how we put things together, it's whether we do good or bad, that it's up to us. And the beauty of what John is going to share this morning in the assurance of knowing Jesus is that that assurance begins first and foremost with Jesus Christ. It's not our self-righteousness. It's not the good works that we can do. It has everything to do with the character and the work of Jesus first and foremost. We are certainly invited to respond, to participate. But the foundation of knowing that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ comes from the work 
that he's done and that we've been invited into. And so we're going to begin in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. John says this, This is the message which we have heard from him, meaning Jesus, and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John begins with a very important truth. First, he kind of takes us back to those first four verses. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him. Again, John literally heard Jesus in the flesh. He is an eyewitness to the teaching of Christ. And then he uses the word declare. This is more than just somebody sharing something. A declaration carries with it authority. And John is speaking not simply on his own authority, but on the authority that he was given when Jesus commissioned the disciples to go out into all the nations and make disciples of Jesus Christ, teaching them to obey all his commands and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is what? God is light, and in him there is no darkness. This is why it's so important. John is not merely speaking about the radiant glory of God. That's true. There is a literal brightness to God. Uh, when we consider the sun um, from far away from where we sit on the earth, when you look at the sun, what happens? <laughs> you can't see, <laughs> right? Don't, don't go outside and be like, Pastor JC told me to... Don't look at the sun because it's so bright. But when you can get a certain filter on the telescope, what do you notice about the sun? There's dark spots all over it. There's places where it's brighter than another. And God is light so much so that there is what? There is no darkness in him at all. Nothing in creation can even compare to who he is. And this light isn't simply the light that he radiates, but it speaks of the light that brings truth, that brings understanding, that brings awareness from a spiritual standpoint of what is of God and what is of sin or the enemy. And knowing that God is light and there is no darkness in him is key for our relationship with Jesus. John begins here because having a relationship with Jesus doesn't begin with us. It begins with him. It begins with his righteousness. It begins with his perfection, his character, his truth, his sacrifice, his resurrection. It begins with him and there is no darkness in him. Uh, one of the things that I love about this is... When we consider that there is no darkness in Jesus, I think that there's a practical nature to what we can know about God as light. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write this down. God's will and his character never lead you into sin. God's will and character never lead you into sin. And here's why that's so important. Consider this. Um, sometimes when I hear people's testimonies or maybe I'm in conversation with people and I ask the question, hey, when did you come to Christ or what was your life like before Christ? I often hear this. Well, hey, I was, I was living in sin, but I think God just wanted me to go through that time so that I could come to him. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you've thought that. 
maybe it helps kind of make sense of where you've been. And yet if we take John's words here in verse 5 at face value, God is light and there is no what? Darkness in him, which means God's will and his character will never lead us into sin. Therefore, when we look at those seasons in our life where we were in rebelliousness, where we were in active sin, it's important for us to take ownership of those seasons and go, no, that was my sin. That was not God's doing. To give you an example of this, if we go back to the Garden of Eden in chapter two, God realizes Adam is alone and it's not good for him. So he helps Adam realize that he's alone by him naming all the animals and realizing there's not a suitable helper for him. He takes a nap. He wakes up. There's Eve in all her glory. And he goes, holy smokes. <laughs> right? That's the Hebrew. Um, he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is woman who is taken out of man. And Adam is thrilled. And what I love, he doesn't know a thing about Eve except that she's from who? From God. And one chapter later, God goes, Adam, did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to? And Adam's response is what? It was the woman you gave me. Who does Adam blame? Oh, he blames God. Not just Eve, he blames God. And it's easy for us, even in our own lives, to look back on seasons where we were in rebellion or maybe a current season of sin and go, well, I think, I think God just wants me to go through this. No, he does not. Because he only leads us in paths of righteousness. Now, here's the beauty of God's character. He will never lead us into sin, but aren't you glad that he's willing to meet us in our sin? And this is true of who he is. He never leads us into sin, but he will pursue us even to the end of ourselves. John begins with this important truth. God is light and in him there is no darkness. Verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But... If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You're going to notice a pattern as we go through both 1 John and then part of 2 John this morning. He'll often give what's known as a negative, and then he'll contrast that with the positive. Verse 6 and 7, you start with the negative. If we say that we have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness, then we what? then we lie. But in verse seven, he reminds us, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So we're going to unpack this briefly. Last week, we talked about how our highest calling in life is fellowship with God. It's not our career path. It's not a relationship with another human being. It's not our goals and desires and achievements. Our highest calling in life is fellowship with the living God, with the Father and with the Son through the power of his Spirit. And in verse 6, we're told that if we say, if we speak with our mouths, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. Yeah, I, I know who Jesus is. Yeah, I know all about the Bible. If we say that we have fellowship with him, 
but we walk in darkness, we do what? We lie and we do not practice the truth. Um, here's why that matters so much. We can come to church. We can use the right language by not saying the wrong language. We can speak words that people go, oh, amen, hallelujah. Yeah, brother. Yeah, sister. But if we walk in darkness, we are lying. And the truth is not in us. And this isn't just talking about the truth about the Bible stories. If we don't have the truth living in us, then what does that tell us? We're not saved. Without the truth living in us, which is a relationship with the living God, Jesus Christ, if the truth is not in us, then we lie. And we are not saved. That's why this matters. We can't just give lip service and spend eternity with Jesus Christ. It's meant to be something that saturates our entire life. And that comes through a relationship with him. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand for this, but how many of you are like, okay, hey, JC, I, I agree with you, but there are definitely times when I don't do that. Anybody do that on a daily basis? See, I love it. I said, don't raise your hands, but then I duped you and got a few of you to raise your hand. All of us do, right? We all do this. We all sin. As a matter of fact, we know from God's word, Romans 3.23 teaches us what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God or fall short of his glorious standard. So then how do I differentiate? How do I tell the difference between, okay, well, I think I walk in the light, but man, I, I did this this morning, or I thought this yesterday, or I thought this and did this today. How do I know if I'm walking in the light and not walking in darkness? How do I know if I'm walking in darkness and I'm not actually in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Jesus helps speak to this. In Matthew chapter 7, he gives an illustration of a fruit tree. I've got it up here on your screens. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in 17. Let's read this all together one loud voice. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. All right, so as we're talking about food here, how many of you are getting a, a picture? What's the fruit tree you're picturing? Okay, we got apple, peaches, anything you can turn into pie is where you guys are going here. Perfect. Now, when you think of a fruit tree, if it's healthy, what do you picture? <laughs> fruit. <laughs> you picture fruit. How much fruit? A lot of fruit, right? Now, within that fruit tree, a good fruit tree, where the, will there be some bad apples? There absolutely will be. There will be some that don't ripen correctly or that rot on the tree. But as a whole, a good tree bears what? Good fruit. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear. We're talking about the whole. We're not talking about an individual sin that you committed. Oh, now you walk in darkness. All of us have sin and fall short. And yet, as a whole, a good tree produces what? Good fruit. A bad tree only produces bad fruit. It's rotten. 
It's not edible. It can't produce any good fruit. So that when we take inventory of our lives, we have to measure what we say versus the fruit that we're producing. And the beauty of what Jesus is teaching us in this illustration and what John is writing in his letter is we can be assured of our salvation before the fruit in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which then gives us something to hold as a standard. Am I bearing fruit that points people to Jesus or am I bearing fruit that takes away from him? Let's look at the rest of this verse. Read it with me. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus doesn't mince words, does he? What is he referring to if you're a bad tree? Hell, eternal death. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Which simply means when we look at our own lives, when we look at the lives of one another, we should be able to tell a bad tree from a good tree. We should be able to tell based on the fruit that is produced. And John makes it abundantly clear. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I love this part of the verse. How much sin does it cleanse us from? All sin. All sin. Which means that if we walk in the light, in order to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus, what must we do? We must ask for forgiveness. We must repent of our sin. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as John gets into it. Verse 8, you still with me? If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. John is about to teach a very profound truth. Now, in our day and age, it's unlikely that you meet anyone, even just by taking a straw poll at the beach or on the street. If you go, hey, have you ever done something wrong? I would assume 99.9% .9 of people are going to say what? Yes. And there's that outlier. But for the most part, everybody's going to say yes. Right? In circles of Christianity, in church, if you go, hey, have you ever sinned? People are going to say what? So what in the world is John talking about? What person in their right mind would say that they have no sin? <laughs> A lot of people. <laughs> Here's what I believe John is teaching. Bless you. John is teaching this. Um, when I was younger, I knew about Christ, but I wasn't walking in Christ. My God was football. And depending on how football went that week in my game, depended on how the rest of the week went for me and for everybody else around me. If, if, it, if it was a good game, you could sit next to me in class and I would be joyful. I would be nice. I'd be a pleasure to be around. But if I had a poor game, what was it like? Ugh, poor me. So grumpy. Missed that tackle. I'm such a loser. Blah. 
And if someone dared called me out on it, like my parents, son, this is just a game. What do you mean it's just a game? I was built like this. It's not my fault. I'm just competitive. What am I doing? Oh, I'm defending and justifying my what? But I say I have no sin. I'm just competitive. You see? Or I hear this a lot of times in conversation or in counseling. Hey, listen, that wasn't my fault. I'm Irish. (laughs) Wait a minute. What does that actually mean? What are we trying to do? Trying to justify our own sin. Now, here's what that looks like from a slippery slope perspective. In almost every system that we're currently dealing with in our country. Hey, love is love. If you love somebody, you're free to do whatever you want to. You see, people were born that way. Therefore, it's not a sin. Do you see how serious this becomes? And we begin to justify our sinfulness. And the scripture teaches us, if we say we have no sin, then we are what? Then we're liars and the truth is not in us, which means we cannot have fellowship with God and therefore miss out on eternal life with him. John is teaching a profound truth. We deceive ourselves when we justify or excuse our sin. We deceive ourselves when we justify or excuse our sin. I want to encourage you. Uh, Every time I get to study God's word, I have to do this. I have to inspect my life. Uh, We we try to do something here as a staff. What we respect, we inspect. In my relationship with Jesus, is there anywhere in my life, is there anywhere in your life where you're justifying or excusing your sin? Hey, it's not my fault that I'm treating my wife this way. It's not my fault I treat my husband this way. It's not my fault that I have this strange relationship with my kids because they... If we say we have no sin, we what? We deceive ourselves and we lie. And then John takes it even further. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The beauty of what John does here is that's the negative. How many of you want to get to the positive? How many of you respond better to positive encouragement, by the way? Yeah, Yeah, probably most of us. Um, It's amazing how the world doesn't function that way, though, huh? Verse 9 is the positive. It's the opposite of being deceived. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All. All. All unrighteousness. You see, confession of sin is literally the counter to being deceived. Because when we confess our sin, what are we doing? Say that again. We're admitting it. We're going, I am a sinner in need of a savior. And here's the beauty of why this helps us in the assurance of our salvation and a relationship with Jesus. When we say, I am a sinner and I need a savior, it literally affirms that we are in a relationship with a God who needs to rescue us. When we are deceived, we go, hey, I don't need rescuing because I don't have what? I don't have sin. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. It is amazing to me that in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you would think that to affirm or to have assurance that I'm going to spend eternity with Jesus, that I would have to live in perfection. And isn't it just like God that when I sin and mess up, he provides a way for me to confess my sin to him, which reminds me, oh, that's right, because I'm in relationship with you. I can come to you at any time. You already know what I've done, and yet you want to spend time with me so that I can get right with you, and you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. John specifically uses that word just. It's very important. Um, Right now in our California prison system, there's a lot of early release happening because of overcrowding in prisons. And for some, that may seem nice, right? Um, Hey, you get out early. Uh, If you're in prison, how many of you would like to get out early? (laughs) You're like, I would never be in prison. We'd all like to get out early. But what is it lacking? Justice. John makes it clear he is both faithful and just, which means this. It's not that God is a nice guy. It's not that he just gives us a free pass. It's that he personally paid the penalty for us, giving justice for what has been done so that we could be set free. As a parent, it's important that I teach my children about justice in the way that I parent. Not just like, hey, it's okay. Don't worry about it. We'll try not to punch our brother in the face the next time. There needs to be a penalty for the sin. And that penalty was death. And we know through the gospel of Jesus Christ that it was Jesus who paid that penalty for us so that we could be forgiven. He is both faithful and just to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Perpetual repentance is the fruit of a relationship with Jesus. Perpetual repentance is the fruit of a relationship with Jesus. One of the ways that we can be assured that we're in relationship with Jesus is that we're constantly what? Constantly confessing our sin. Constantly repenting. And listen, I wish it wasn't so in my own life. I wish it was like a once a week thing. It is not. It's just not. I'm telling the truth, Michael. I have to repent all the time, but that repentance reminds me of my relationship with Jesus. And every time I ask for forgiveness, what cleanses me? His blood cleanses me from all unrighteousness. I am reminded daily over and over and over again about my Savior and what he's done. This is the beauty of how God lives in relationship with us. As we transition into chapter two, I want to encourage us just to reflect on what we've learned in chapter one. Our assurance of a relationship with Jesus begins with God's character because God is light and there is no darkness in him. He reveals all truth. He allows us to understand what is good, right, lovely, pure, and true, and to also identify what is deceptive, what is wicked, what is evil, what is self-serving. Secondly, we respond 
to his initiating character and perfection by confessing our sin, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive. He initiates through his work on the cross. We respond by confessing our sin, which affirms our relationship with him. Now, John has told the church he's written this letter for the purpose that is found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. You ready to get there? He says, my little children, um, by the way, this is a term of endearment. He's not being disrespectful, um, but he is saying for those who are still small in their faith, just growing new, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not, what? You may not sin. This may be profound to some of you, but do you know that God desires for you to lead a life without sin? God desires to lead a life for you to lead a life without sin. Now, when you kind of process that, does anyone else go, well, duh. (laughs) But what's profound about that truth? Sin becomes so normal, so common in our everyday life, that it's easy to forget that the reason Jesus came, died, and resurrected and gave us his spirit and his word was to literally live a life without sin. This is what he desires for you in your relationship with your spouse. If you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are equipped to not sin. Now, the reality for each one of us, myself included, is that because of my selfishness and because of my desire to please myself, what are we constantly doing? Sinning. But it's good for us to really digest this truth that God desires for us to lead a life without sin because it helps us to understand and ask the question, do I hate my sin? Or have I just grown comfortable with it to the point where I let it hang around? Not like in the main room, but on the side room. And every once in a while, I'll wander in there. I don't want to sleep there, but I kind of like playing a game of ping pong in that room and then coming back out. Do you understand what I'm saying? God desires for us to lead a life without sin. Now, John, knowing that Christ is perfect He is righteous and he alone and we are sinners in the same breath. In verse one, he says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And everyone say, and And. if anyone sins, which is all of us, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the whole world. In the same breath, John says, hey, you have been equipped. Literally, you've been empowered to say no to sin. That's what the work of Christ on the cross has done. He has given us his spirit so that we don't have to say yes to sin any longer. But if you do sin, be encouraged. You have a what? You have an advocate. You have living atonement in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, The Greek translation is an appeasement of God's wrath. One who took that place for you and for me, and not only for us, but for who? 
the whole world for anyone who would confess their sins and turn to Jesus Christ, they will be saved. And here's the beauty of what John is teaching us. We can be assured of our relationship with Jesus specifically because of what he has done as the propitiation, the appeasement of God's wrath so that when we do sin, even though we're called to a life without sin, we're not running to the hills going, it's over, I'm done, I'm finished, he'll never accept me. And the reality is this. Again, don't raise your hands for this, just listen. How many of us have sinned for the 10,000th time in that thing that we've promised we would never do again and go, I can't, I can't come back to God. I can't, I can't face him again. He'll never forgive me for this. I can't believe he is faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. Because he is the propitiation for our sins. This imagery that is given to us of an advocate, of an appeasement. Um, If you've ever been in a legal battle before, you often have to hire a what? A lawyer or an attorney. And in this case, your attorney is free. Everyone say amen. Amen. But it's not just that he's free. It's that he's your advocate. He makes nothing off of this. He does it out of his love for you. And he goes to the judge and says, hey, I'm here to speak on JC's behalf, on Christie's behalf, on Steve's behalf. But not only do I want to speak on their behalf, I want to take their place. They're guilty. They do deserve judgment. And because you're a just God, judgment must be done. And yet I'm willing to take their place. That's what it means to be a propitiation. That's who Christ is for us. That is the assurance of our relationship with Jesus that when we sin, we have an advocate. And here's the beauty of why that's important. Sometimes difficult for us to discern the difference between the condemnation of Satan and the conviction of God's spirit. Here's the difference. The condemnation of Satan tries to isolate you and tell you, you can't go back to God. He doesn't want you. I can't believe you've done this. Stay far away from him. The conviction of God's spirit goes, you're a sinner in need of a savior. And there's a propitiation for your sins. And if you repent and confess, he is faithful and just to what? To forgive. So if you in your mind or in your heart or in your emotions feel like I can't go back to God, that is who? That's Satan's condemnation. But if you know that you are to repent, which means admitting, not justifying or excusing your sin, but taking ownership of it, that is the conviction of the Holy Spirit That leads to repentance and then leads to forgiveness, which affirms and assures that you have relationship with who? With Jesus Christ, the assurance of your salvation. John chapter 2, verse 3. Now by this, we know him if we what? 
Keep his commandments. We're going to unpack that in just a little bit. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. A repeat of verse six in chapter one, verse five in chapter two. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. Um, it's interesting that John provides a way for us to know or a way for us to be assured of our relationship with Jesus that if we know that we know him, we do what? We keep his commandments. Now, all of us as Christians know, okay, well, I can't be saved by works. So what in the word does this mean? I thought that it didn't matter what I did. No, it does matter what you do. But the law can't save you. Your goodness will never be enough to save you. It's the goodness of Christ. But here's what it looks like. Uh, yesterday, I got to have some pool time. I was at my parents' house with my kids. And my seven-year-old son, Levi, he loves being thrown. And to clarify, in the pool. First service, I didn't say the pool. And they're like people concerned after service. <laughs> you just throw your kids? Yeah. <laughs> Hard knocks. No, in the pool. Right? And so my seven-year-old Levi, the moment we get in the pool, he's like, Dad, throw me. And I, you know, I pick him up under his arms and you toss him. And he's like, nope, higher. Okay. So you throw him high. He's like, higher. So you put him on your shoulders. And then before you know it, you want to stand at the edge of the pool with him on your shoulders and then throw him. And he's like, yeah, this is amazing. Why is he willing to be thrown? Oh, because he trusts me, because he has a relationship with me, because he loves me and he knows this. No matter how far dad throws him, it's going to be so much fun. This is what it looks like to respond to God because he first loved us. We love him back by obeying his commands, by literally going, God, no matter how far you throw me, no matter how much you want to use me, no matter what you're calling me to do, I know that if I walk in your ways, it's going to be so much, <laughs> maybe not fun all the time. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. It's going to glorify you. It's going to bring others to Christ. It's going to grow and build my character to look more like your son. This is what it means to walk in obedience to God's commands. It's because of the relationship that we have with him, not because of the rules that we need to follow in order to appease him. He's already been appeased. And it wasn't by you. It was by who? Jesus Christ as the propitiation for our sins. How do we know we know Jesus? If you're taking notes, I want you to write these down. The first is we confess his initiating love for us. We confess his initiating love for us. This is the gospel. We believe that Christ lived, died, and rose again to forgive us of our sins and to call us into eternal life. He gives us purpose and a mission to go and make disciples of Jesus. We confess his initiating love. How do we know we know Jesus? Number two, we respond in loving obedience to his word. We respond in loving obedience to his word, which means this. When you're in your marriage and you don't like the way your spouse is acting, 
You have a choice in that moment. The choice is twofold. You can return the favor and be sarcastic and then say, well, hey, I was just joking. That's called doing what? Deceiving ourselves that we have no sin, right? Or you can show them the love of Christ, even if they don't deserve it in that moment. The same goes true for our neighbors. Um, I'm a chaplain for the Carlsbad Police Department. I occasionally get to ride around with the police, and you would not believe how many calls happen in the city of 911, my neighbor trimmed my bush. <laughs> and guess who responds? The police. And they do it, it does cost money. <laughs> But here's what I love is usually they do it with such grace and they grab this neighbor and they grab this neighbor and they go, can we resolve this? Because if not, then we just send it to code enforcement, but it would just be better if we could talk this out. And at that moment, those neighbors have a choice. They can walk lovingly in the obedient commands of Jesus, or they can worry about the bush that was hanging over their fence and plant their flag in the ground. And we laugh about that, but isn't it interesting how stubborn we can become? And when we walk in God's ways, he softens our heart, first by his initiating love, and then by the way that we respond in relationship to others. Look at verse four. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. Or this word in Greek is matured in him. Which means this. When we love others as Christ loved us, we are a what type of Christian? We are a mature Christian. That's what it looks like. And here's what I love. It doesn't look like knowing the Bible backwards and forwards, knowing Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. It doesn't, know, doesn't mean we have to know all about everything of theology we're going to learn here in just a moment. Jesus goes, the world will know that you are my disciples by what? The way you love one another. It's practical. It's tangible. It's able to be seen. For those of you here who are playing company softball, the world will know you by what? <laughs> I attended a game not too long ago. Unfortunately, it was the other team. But man, they were cruel to each other. For those of you who are in the military, you are in a difficult environment, but the world will know you by the way you what? By the way you love one another. It will be different. And you have opportunities to show that you are in a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse seven, brethren, or that word is also translated beloved can hear John's tone. He's gentle. He's loving. He's encouraging. Beloved, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word by which you heard from the beginning. In other words, when we live in relationship with others, from the beginning, God has taught us to treat people like what? We want to be treated. This is not a new command. This is not new news. But now look at what John says in verse 8. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him, Jesus, and in you, 
Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What in the world is John talking about when he says no new commandment and now he says a new commandment? From the beginning, how are we always to treat one another? With love. But here's why John says, a new commandment I write to you. He is specifically referring back to his gospel that he wrote in chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus taught this, that you should love one another as I have loved you, love one another. Here's why that's a new commandment is yes, we've always known we should treat one another with love and dignity and respect. But we could never fathom the level of what that meant until Jesus came to earth to live with sinful mankind and gave his life for us. Therefore, the new command is, hey, I'm not calling you just to be cordial. I'm not calling you just to be nice. I'm not calling you just to give lip service and a thumbs up as they pass by. I'm calling you to have sacrificial love for others. Love others just as I have loved you. This is the new command. How are you doing in loving others as Christ has loved you? When you look inside the walls of your home, are you loving others as Christ has loved you? When you look around in your neighborhood, are you loving others as Christ has loved you? When you look at your coworkers, are you loving others as Christ has loved you? Verse 9 says, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Here's the positive and the negative again. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. A third reason of how do we know we know Jesus? We love one another, no exceptions. Everybody say no exceptions. Uh, I love Ephesians chapter 5. Um, it's the marriage passage in verses 21 all the way through the end of the chapter, 33. Wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Husband loves your, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What are there not in that entire passage? Exceptions, no asterisks, but God, you don't under, no, he does understand. And that's the beauty of his love for us. If anyone had an excuse not to love somebody because of something that somebody did, it would be God in relationship with me. It would be God in relationship with you. And yet his unconditional love has no exceptions. What assurance we have of being in a relationship with Jesus. There is nothing you can do to break that relationship with him when you are in perpetual repentance coming back to him. It reminds us that we will spend eternity with Christ. Finally, how do we know we know Jesus? The last one that I have for us is we openly follow Jesus. No private Christianity. Um, the world will know us by the way we love one another. It's not a secret. It's not something we hide. We can't do this under a basket, under a bed. We can't do this just in a room and then go about living our lives as though Christ isn't a part of our life. The world will know us by the way we love one another. 
The world will know us by the way that we have integrity in the workplace, that we don't cheat on our numbers, by the way that we speak to our wife or our husband outside the church and inside the church, the way that we parent our children, holding them accountable, even when it means that there's discipline involved, a word that the world does not embrace. We openly follow Jesus. This is a way that we can know that we know him. And then John goes into kind of a poetic summary of assurance. Verses 12 through 14, and I'll unpack kind of these terms of endearment he uses in just a moment. John chapter 2, verse 12 says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Uh, This term, little children, literally means spiritual little ones, infants in the faith, those who might go, oh, no, I sinned. Does that mean I'm out? And John goes, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for whose sake? Oh, for his namesake, for Jesus's namesake. I write to you fathers. This term fathers means the spiritually mature men and women who have been walking with Christ for some time. Those who are putting into action and bearing good fruit. He says, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. Simply affirming you have a relationship with Jesus. And then I write to you young men, uh, young men and young women. Think of warriors. Think of those who have a lot of life and energy and strength both spiritually and physically, those who are on the front lines, I write to you because you have overcome who? You have overcome the wicked one. Not you in your own strength, not you in your giftings, not you in your own righteousness. You, through a relationship with Jesus Christ, have overcome who? Satan himself. How encouraging. Notice that John is speaking to the entire church, those young in the faith, those seasoned veterans in the faith, those who are passionate and zealous in the faith. For all of you, you can be assured of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, he says, I write to you, little children, because you have known the father. Verse 14, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. What encouraging words that come from knowing that we have assurance of being in a relationship with Jesus Christ, that all those things are true, not because of how amazing you are, but because of the perfection of Jesus Christ. We're going to finish in verses 15 through 17. You still with me? All right, here we go. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. How many of you struggle with that one? All of us struggle with that one, right? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. Let's cover real quick what he is saying and what he isn't saying. God's not saying that it's wrong to love your spouse or your kids or family or friends. It's not wrong to love the beautiful creation that he's made or the provision or the blessings that he's given you. But it is wrong to love those things above God. Just like money isn't the root of all evil. What's the problem? 
The love of money is the root of all evil. So that when John says in verse 15, do not love the world, he's talking about raising things up above God's station, a place of worship in which something takes the place of our relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, if you do love the world, the love of the father is not in him. Uh, Jesus elsewhere would teach you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and the things of this world. It has to be one or the other. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of this world. Uh, just a, a quick couple of tidbits on, on these things. The lust of the flesh can be summarized as a lack of self-control in order to please ourselves. Lust of the eyes, meaning coveting, desiring, daydreaming, pursuing the things that we want and not things that God wants for us. And then lastly, the pride of life is glory stealing. Think of Satan. He wanted to be first. He wanted to be worshipped. Therefore, he placed himself against God, and that's what got him thrown out of heaven, banned from eternity into the lake of fire because of the pride of life. He was trying to steal God's glory. And when we consider these things, the Bible teaches in depth about each one of these. Think about the Tower of Babel. We just covered this in Genesis 11. If you haven't been with us through our In the Beginning God series, as we go verse by verse through Genesis, go back and listen to the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. Pastor Dave does a phenomenal job unpacking what it looked like for mankind to unite together to worship their own strength and their own abilities above God. They were trying to steal his glory. How did that work out for the people at Babel? Like 5,000 different languages. Or the story of Lot. Uh, we've already looked at a little bit of Lot. Not a lot of, a little, a little bit of Lot. And in Genesis 19, as we continue our series in a few weeks, we're going to see what happens with the love of the world. Lot knows what's right, but he can't let go of what? The city of Sodom and the life he's built and the grip that it has on him. So much so that his wife can't not look ahead. She looks back and that is the end for her life. John says, don't love the things of this world. But in verse 17, we have an understanding of why. The world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Here's your final note for the day. God has given you eternal stock options. Invest wisely. God has given you eternal stock options. Invest wisely. Again, don't raise your hand for this one. But Bitcoin. <laughs> Any investment. Now, it's not wrong to invest the things of this world wisely, but you understand if that's what you hold the most tightly to, it's passing away. The world itself will be rolled up like an old blanket and tossed out. God's judgment is coming. And yet he calls us right where we are in a relationship with him to invest in eternal things. Think of a marriage. It could just literally be, I'm just trying to get through the day without saying anything foolish. 
Or it could be, I'm trying to build my wife because she's God's daughter on loan to me and I have to return her someday. And my job is to lay my life down for her. What can I do today that points her to Jesus? That's different. Hey, I got four kids. 18 is just around the corner. Well, wait a minute. Scratch that. 23, just around the corner. For some of you in here, 30, just around the corner. Or we can go, hey, these are kids that God has gifted to us, and he's given each of them a gifting. How do I cultivate that gifting for the purpose of them glorifying Jesus Christ so that when they're ready to go, when they're ready to be sent out, they're doing more than just their job. They're making disciples of Jesus Christ. We're given purpose. We're given reason to invest eternally in the things that God has given us in this world. I'll finish with this reference. I'm in Matthew chapter 25. How many of you remember the parable of the talents that Jesus gives? Uh, by the way, talents is not uh, like, hey, can you juggle? Uh, talents is just a measure or a weight of money. And it's a lot of money that this master gives to his servants, even the one who only gets one talent. Still a significant amount of money. And we often focus on the first two servants. What do they do with what they're given? They double it. They invest it wisely. High fives all around. Way to go, guys. The third servant does what? Buries it. More like, oh, third servant, what's wrong with you? But do we understand why that happened? We often focus on the abilities of the first two servants, but that has nothing to do with it. The first two servants had an abiding relationship with their master. They knew who he was. They knew how to please him, and it wasn't hard to do so. They already knew that what they were given did not belong to them, and they were simply just stewards who would need to return it someday anyways. But they had such a deep and abiding relationship with their master that they longed to please him. And they awaited his return. And it was the third servant who says these words. Oh, master, I, I knew you were a hard man. Tough to please. Reaping where you didn't sow. What did the third servant not have that the first two did? A relationship with the master. That's why John writes this letter. To give us assurance that we can know we have an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about how much we make. It's about how much we lovingly respond to what he's done. You can have assurance. First, through the character of Christ and his faithfulness and justice to forgive us. And then by the way, we respond to his incredible love by obeying his commands like a loving child does to their father. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.